Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Arakwal Banjalung woman, for that welcome to country. Delta is a long-time supporter of Byron Writers' Festival. You're listening to a Conversations from Byron podcast, though personally I'm recording this episode where I live and work on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge Elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Maeve Marsden and welcome to Queer Stories for Byron Writers' Festival. I was so excited to host an event at the festival this year, so of course it's a bit of a heartbreak to be just podcasting these wonderful stories into your ears, rather than gathering with you in person. But we didn't want to miss the opportunity to share the work of these brilliant queer writers, so here we are. For the uninitiated, Queer Stories is a national LGBTQI storytelling project I've been curating for nearly five years. When we're able to gather in person, I host events around the country, beautiful opportunities for queer community to come together and listen to each other's stories. Those stories are then shared on the award-winning podcast that I produce, which has nearly 250 stories on it now. Queer Stories is about sharing the stories we want to tell. So often, LGBTQI plus people are asked the same questions over and over. We're asked to tell stories to advocate for our rights, to educate cisgender or heterosexual people. We tell our coming out story over and over and over again. I was brought up by lesbian mothers and I grew tired of answering these same questions. So I started Queer Stories as a platform for the unexpected, for the surprising stories that my community has to share. The stories for this podcast are a beautiful mix of light, warm, thought-provoking, hilarious and heartbreaking, as Queer Stories stories so often are. With tales from Ellen Van Nierven, Sally Rugg, Michael Sun and Hayley Katzen, you're in for a wonderful hour or so of queer creativity. So make yourself a cuppa or help pour yourself a stiff drink and settle in. Our first story is by Sally Rugg. Sally is an LGBTIQ rights activist, writer and public speaker. She's the executive director at political activist group Change.org and was previously campaign director at GetUp, where she led the campaign for marriage equality for five years. She wrote How Powerful We Are, her first book about that campaign. Just as we were warned from the screeches of late-night cable television talk shows, the stutters of far-right Senate motions defeated and the leaflets lobbed into letterboxes during the horror show that was 2017, I have fallen in love with the cat. I love her. I love her. How did she get such a soft, fluffy belly? I sing across the living room. A big stretch? How did you get so long? I love her little pink paws and her funny tail with the white tip. It matches your white chin. I love the little black dots on the tip of her perfect nose. And I love pulling back her lips so I can get a glimpse of those teeny tiny teeth. I love how she gets winky when she's sleepy and how she tucks her paws away in a secret underneath her body when she's resting like a loaf of bread. Where are your arms? She's a girl, I correct each person we talk to over Zoom. Yes, her name is Henry Beans, Beans for short, and yes, she is a beautifully handsome ginger cat, and ginger cats are almost always boys, but Beans is a girl. Not because of her surprise vagina, discovered by the vet at her first visit. We would not assign Bean's a gender, and indeed I believe many, if not all, pets are genderqueer. But because Bean's is a lady. If you could see the way she extends her leg, toes splayed and claws extended to lick clean her undercarriage, you would see that Bean's is a lady. If you could see the way she prowls on her toes, her primordial pouch belly swinging beneath her and her white-tipped tail swishing the air, 
you would agree, Beans is a lady. You may not move if Beans has drifted into a slumber upon your lap, lest you disturb her rest, for Beans is a lady and will not be startled. Do not place your beastly hands upon Beansy's tail. She will now have to clean it for hours. Beans is a lady until it approaches dinner time. She then becomes a Dickensian street urchin, wailing for her supper. Unloved! Neglected! Never given a morsel in her poor, lonely existence! Beans is an orphan. Don't listen, Beans. Your mummies are here. My partner Kate found her on the side of the road one rainy winter's evening about nine years ago. A teeny tiny baby covered in fleas, gunk in her eyes, too little to be outside in the rain all alone, abandoned. Kate took her home and fed her years before she and I met. Kate, I mean. A time when... I never knew, really, what it was to be in desperate, insatiable love. Until I met Beans, I mean. Growing up, I had a cat called Tibbles. She was black and white and once scratched me across my face when I was a preschooler. I'm certain I deserved it. My mum had a cat called Lucy, who I took to the vet to be put down. She was very sick and the vet recommended that outcome, which is fortunate for the story and unfortunate for Lucy. I've never really liked cats. That's not why I took Lucy to be put down. It just felt like something I had the capacity to take off my poor mother's plate so she could say goodbye to the cat at home and I could do the awful vet thing. I just... I never really found an entry point with cats. I can't take a cat to the beach or to a beer garden pub. There are no videos on YouTube to make myself cry of cats feeling excited that their owner has returned from war. No cat has ever smiled at me from another car window at the traffic lights or run to greet me in the doorway of a friend's house so it can torpedo its nose into my crutch. Just kidding. A dog's nose is one of my least favourite things in my crutch. And why does it always happen in front of people you've just met and really want to impress? Like, I understand that dogs' noses are hypersensitive and we should never feel ashamed of our bodies naturally occurring and beautiful smells. But like, come on! I've literally just walked into this person's house and now their parents know I have a vagina! But beans... Beans would never sniff my vagina. Does she know that I love her? Does she love me? One night, Kate enters the bedroom and I quickly hide my phone as if I was busted looking at porn and as if that was something that I would need to hide from her. I wasn't looking at anything, nothing. She ignores me, for I am odd. But later that night, when we're lying in bed together, I absentmindedly open my phone and the website is there. Its title, a fluorescent beacon laser beaming into our eyes in the dark. It reads, does your cat really love you? Honey, I told you, Kate, animal expert and devotee, repeats to me. She doesn't love you. She doesn't love anybody. She needs you to feed her so her animal behaviour might appear to you like love. But she does not feel love. That is anthropomorphism and it serves no utility to animals. She is a cat and your lap is warm. Is it true, Beans? Do you not love me? Unloved? Neglected? I'm almost certainly projecting from beans upon myself and from myself unto beans. I have barely left the house since the 12th of March and the waggy tailed love and affection I'm so accustomed to thrusting upon my friends like an unexpected nose into a crutch has been long left unthrusted 
like the unloading of a cis-het man who can afford a therapist but instead chooses to wait until you're stuck next to him at a party because girls are such good listeners. I have emotionally ejaculated my heart and soul and neediness onto Beans the cat. Should we set up a time to Zoom your sister or maybe Beck Shaw? Kate asks me noticing my social soul collapsing in on itself. But I don't want another screen. I don't have the energy to talk anymore. I just want to hold the cat until she falls asleep in my arms and starts twitching, dreaming of chasing the mice she fears in her waking life. She wails to me at dinner time. Starved and tortured beings pause at my arm. I'm starved of the touch of friends and it feels like love. And that's what it's about, isn't it? Yearning for love? Young women are warned that unless we find a husband before we're 30, we risk a slow descent into becoming a crazy cat lady. Those conservative misogynists were right again. I am 31 and will nary a husband find, and it has happened to me already. Why is it cats get to us? Perhaps you are listening to me speak and thinking, I hate cats. They're so aloof and mean. But I need you to know I used to be like you, and it can happen to you. You think you are a well-adjusted woman and then wham, you're alone in your home in the middle of the day with the cat slung upon your shoulders like a dance partner and you're dancing, eyes closed to the sound of your own voice singing, oh beans, oh beans, oh beans, oh beans. And there is something about women and cats, particularly odd women and cats. And I am allowed to say this because, as I have indicated, I am odd. I know nothing about pop culture, learning just last week that Kevin Bacon is an actor and not a funny unit of measurement about global population growth or something. But even I know fondness for an abundance of cats is used time and time again in pop culture as a big red flag warning of a woman who is repulsive to men and crazy. Indeed, between the 16th and the 17th centuries in England, an estimated 40,000 women were burnt at the stake, accused of being witches by their country's judiciary. An analysis of the legal records of 200 trials during this period, because let's make sure these ladies are given a fair hearing before we set them alight, showed that cats were so favoured as companions of women accused of being witches that their presence beside odd women was ruled by the courts as an incriminating indication of witchcraft in and of itself. Dogs are a man's best friend, but cats? Cats are a crazy lady's making and undoing. During this lockdown, I am a crazy lady. During this lockdown, like most others, I leave the house to go to the supermarket, the bottle shop, or to the chemist. And while I am there, I give zero hugs and receive zero social interactions beyond Narelle from Dan Murphy's telling me I should really get a loyalty card from how frequently I'm buying more gin. I can't keep track of a card, Narelle. I lost my bank card two years ago and simply never replaced it because I cannot be responsible for a small plastic rectangle. Narelle. Here in Melbourne, we're also allowed to go for short walks within our neighbourhood. So Kate obviously bought a cat backpack. Now, when I say cat backpack, I don't mean a bag with a leopard print. I mean a backpack for carrying beans in. For when we go for our family walks. Kate, too, is a crazy cat lady. Beans has grown used to the carrier bag, preferring us to wear it on our fronts like we're attachment parenting a baby, and in a way, we are. Neighbours and passers-by stare at us in bewilderment and amusement, our five-year-old shrieking in laughter, Beans! 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 
is as if she's very excited about legumes. I suppose even though we're suffering a pandemic, it's fortunate that we're not living in Salem, our little family of witches. Our days blend together as we remain in our house, and before we know it, it's August. Beans doesn't know this, though. Beans doesn't give a fuck. Through the highs and lows, the triumphs and the terror, this little orange ball of fur could not care less. She knows nothing of the curve. She has never heard of the virus. She is unbothered whether kindergarten will go back in term three or not, disinterested during the Daily Dan, every day's 11am press conference with the Premier. She does not miss her friends. She does not care that the lady at Dan Murphy's knows my name because we're drinking every night, or that I long to hug strangers in the supermarket and chemist. She does not care. Maybe she doesn't even love me. But... I think she does. I love that story of Sally's basically because I could have written it myself. I've spent this strange year of pandemic and lockdown falling deeply in love with my own puppy, Dot. Our next story is Ellen Van Nieven. Ellen is an award-winning writer, editor and educator of Munanjali, Yagamba and Dutch heritage with strong ancestral ties to southeast Queensland. They write poetry, fiction and non-fiction and play football on unceded Turbul and Yuggera land. Ellen's books, Heat and Light, Comfort Food and most recently Throat, have won countless awards. They're also the editor of three collections, including the recent Homeland Calling, and they're co-editing an upcoming collection of speculative fiction, Unlimited Futures, with Sudanese multilingual writer Rafif Ishmael. Ellen has chosen for this podcast to share a few of their poems from Throat, along with insights and I guess some personal reflections on the writing process, which as a lover of the book, I really enjoyed listening to. Jingari Jingbalang. I'm on Yagara and Turbul Dagen, and I'm Malanjali from the Yugumba language group, which for those of you who don't know, is a Logan, Gold Coast and Scenic Rim region of Southeast Queensland. My mum is a Curry and a Williams. We have a really big family here in Brisbane. And my dad is Dutch. Uh, the Van Nievens are also a really big family that come from a village called Milo in the south of the Netherlands. I'm going to read to you five poems from my new book called Throat. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of context to the book, which was written over a four-year period. Two of those years I spent in Nam on Kulin country, and the other two were back home on the Yagara and Turrbal country in Brisbane. I had some amazing experiences in Nam, but I felt I'm quite homesick and I had a tendency on being hard on myself. Uh, but whenever I felt depressed or homesick, I thought about my spiritual connection to country and how nothing can ever take that away because it's inside of me. I thought about the the rivers, particularly Mewa. Brisbane River and I thought of the mountain range out of Bow Desert Way. I thought about the storms and winds and rains and the earth and the trees and the birds and I found my way back. The title of Throat comes from a quote from the black British poet Patient Agbigby. I love throat as a title because it can symbolize more than just one thing. Throat can be like your power to speak. Throat can be about pleasure. Throat can be about pain. And then I was also thinking about the black-throated finch, which has been a symbol for the fight against the Amani, the Adani Kamakuma coal mine. 
It's a beautiful bird that's already endangered and already lost 88% of its historical range. So it's a, you know, it's that threat that's constantly there. Uh, environmental themes, I, I write about these strongly because if country is not healthy, we are not healthy. This book has five sections, which is really important to sort of note. Um, the first section is called They Haunt Walk In. Now, I'm sort of taking cues from two writers, Quoley Driscoll, who's a Cherokee two-spirit writer that talks a lot about haunting, and Blood Memory, which is inspired by Natalie Harkin, which those of you will know is a queer Nunga writer from South Australia. Ancestral memory is what I really draw on in this particular section and just how present it is in our bodies and how memory can be both comforting and painful. I'm going to read you a poem called Vinegar. This poem refers to um, cleaning as a sort of site of violence for um, racialized people. Vinegar. Sometimes the house is unclean. In this panic, I find myself in both past and future. When we clean houses, we do so knowing that they are watching and our lives depend on it. When we teach our children to clean houses, we do so knowing that they are watching and our lives depend on it. I honour your cleaning recipes, squatting on the shower floor. I will not have to work as hard, and I don't have your burdens. But I wonder, does the intergenerational load get heavier or lighter? That was vinegar. Section two is called Whiteness is Always Approaching. And it's informed by Claudia Rankin's work, who's an African-American writer. And she writes, how do you understand white privilege if you don't understand that you're white? If you don't understand that racism is actually about how whiteness functions inside the culture. So, so often us as First Nations peoples, and I think Claudia's talking about um, black people in America and other racialized groups like First Nations Americans, we are studied and we are pulled apart. Uh, But what whiteness, what critical race studies is doing is is sort of turning it upside down and looking at whiteness, uh, looking at... uh, white supremacy, white privilege, white guilt. Um, And I wrote some of this section when I was in Europe and saw how extractive colonialism made Europe what it is today. And I wrote this poem while I was in this really extravagant pool in Munich in Germany. And just thinking about the kind of wealth that had been stolen to build a building like this. The body labours under memory. My tongue hurts from all the things I have said, all the things I haven't. Ways of feeling invisible require proper planning, all the spit in the world, in this pool, especially mine. The third section, I can't wait to meet my future genders, talks about gender as a colonial construct. I really see my gender as fluid and I embrace that, I celebrate that. Um, But there was you know, definitely been periods of confusion. And I wrote this poem, Dysphoria, when I was feeling uh, kind of like an alien in my own body. Feeling like I wasn't 
good enough, um, you know, wasn't one or the other and that made me feel kind of weird um, in and of course being in relationships you have to negotiate your your body with another person and that can be quite triggering this is called dysphoria liberate love into dust shifting self-gearing love them all credit me do what makes you happy she says but doesn't mean it in the way my mum says the desire to take clothes off to take them off but also take off another level underneath peel away those expectations get closer to my truth i love my mind but i haven't come to terms with this i catch you in an embrace with another part of me looking backwards into dust the fourth section speaking outside is like a bit of a riff on sister outsider by audrey lord which who's one of my favorite writers lord was writing about intersectionality way before it became the buzzword that it is today and i've got this uh book of essays um that come from sister outsider and some of them are really seminal like poetry is not a luxury the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house but my favorite is called uses of the erotic the erotic as power which explains erotic as not just a physical experience but a sort of magic a show of resilience in the face of a racist, patriarchal and homophobic society. And Lord said, when I speak of the erotic then, I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work and our lives. So this section is really about reclaiming our language, you know, as someone who has the kind of birthright of, of, of wanting to learn Yugumbe language, language that's been stolen from us, but yet still we hang on to. And um, I was part of a project where I worked with uh, my cousin, Sean Davis, to work on some translations of my poems which are included in this section and while I was learning language and going on this journey I wrote this poem uh, which is called I do have a tongue um, and it goes I do have a tongue that wants to speak in the language of cultural desire and that's really about me having these desires that are beyond empire, that are actually really, really innate to me as a spiritual Yukumbe person who has this inside me, this, this need to connect and the need to be autonomous. I do have a tongue that wants to speak in the language of cultural desire. I want so much more. Which part of the brain, body, throat does language enter? Tell me what happened at the opening. What does it mean to be held in another tongue? The tongue leads us to the last section of my book, which is called Take Me to the Back of My Throat saying take me to that dark vulnerable place i'm ready for it i'm ready to tell you all my secrets honoring and truth telling and saying that if you want to come on this journey with me and be vulnerable with me as a reader i have to be vulnerable as a writer too so this is a very small poem it simply goes Take me to the back 
of your throat, I'll stay. Take me to the back of my throat, I'll stay. Our next story is from a writer who lives in northeast New South Wales. Hayley Katzen's essays have been published in Australian, American and Asian journals and anthologies including Australian Book Review, Griffith Review, Southerly, Fourth Genre and Kenyon Review. Untethered is her debut memoir and it came out this past year. From my hospital bed, I look up at my recently published book, a memoir about belonging. It's perched on the shelf, meant for get-well cards, gifts and flowers. My book is the very best bunch of flowers. It's been my joy over this last year, when life has seemed so fragile. I sent the book out to publishers exactly one year ago, the day before I came into this same hospital, this same ward, with many of the same kind nurses. Ovarian cancer is sometimes described as a hidden or silent killer because it's often discovered too late for surgery. But last year, after nine weeks of chemotherapy, the healing elixir as I called it, after more scans and another diagnostic surgery, the Brazilian wizard calculated he could remove all the cancer. I call him the Brazilian wizard because he's so remarkably skilled because his Brazilian-accented turn of phrase delights me, and his bedside manner has instilled hope in my partner Jen and I, even in the most doubting times. Last year I had other wonder-filled bunches of flowers. One lies here now at the bottom of my bed, a cuddly dressing gown with blue polka dots from my closest friend Madeline in Sydney. I call it my Dalmatian, it arrived with a pink pussy hat after I lost my signature mane of hair, along with a selfie of Madeline wearing her pink pussy hat, one of many funny images she texted to cheer me. But of all the last year's flowers, my touchstone friends were my greatest joy. They flew and drove hours to see us out on the farm. They cooked, they raked leaves and sticks, we talked about the precariousness of health. We laughed about our youthful and ageing exploits. They kept my partner Jen company during the uncertainty of the surgery, during the days I was in ICU and the weeks I was in hospital. One friend came each week to feed the cattle on chemo Wednesday. We were in drought and even without a sick partner, Jen's workload had rocketed. Those friends sent cards and clips from their lives. Before every chemo Wednesday, there were well wishes, even a song to toe-tap along with in the chemo chair. My friend Jessie sent images of flowers or birds, once of a hot air balloon. Go gently today, she said, like this morning's balloon. After years of feeling lonely and isolated living in the bush, Fearing my busy friends had lost interest in me, my messy mind was reset. I was loved. I was cared for. Deeply. Beautifully. I was lucky. Lucky too that the surgery got it out of me. True to my mantra, get it out, get it out, get it out. The Brazilian wizard cut me from sternum to pubic bone and removed cancer from 17 places. I learned the names of bits of my body after I lost them. Three weeks after surgery, as I waited to be disconnected from the healing elixir's purple bag, an email from Ventura Press pinged. They'd love to publish my book. I squealed. My favourite nurse came over and soon everyone in the chemo lounge was smiling. I rang Madeline and then I rang Jessie. Jessie, who'd invited me to join her writing group years before when I'd written nothing but law textbooks and law reports. Jessie cried with joy. Two months after that surgery, Madeline died. Suddenly. Shockingly. How could this be? 
I was the one we thought would die first. The day after the phone call was chemo Wednesday. Jessie and her partner met us in town to talk and cry. The oncologist said I could go to Sydney for Madeline's funeral as long as I didn't miss a week of chemo. But he was worried about my immunity, significantly compromised already from the months of treatment and the surgery, although this was all before COVID-19. So Jen and I drove rather than flew. Madeline's wife would speak at the funeral. Her brother would talk of her childhood. And I would speak of her adult life, just as I'd done at her wedding 20 months earlier. We'd been close friends for 30 years, since we met at law school soon after I arrived in Australia. I poured my love and respect for my gentle, kind-hearted friend onto the page. At her funeral at the crematorium, wearing that pink pussy hat, I stood tall to honour a woman of true, pure goodness. I woke at five the next morning, in pain, terrible pain. But, but what about my eulogy for Madeline? I was meant to deliver it at a second funeral, a community funeral. Madeline was a woman loved by many. By mid-morning, Jen and I were in a cab to the nearest emergency department. Jessie would read the eulogy wearing the pussy hat. Jessie, whom I'd walked beside over 20 years as she wrote and published her first and subsequent books, as she developed from a pale, nervous speaker into a polished and poised presenter, holding an audience with humour, passion and exquisite photographs of Antarctica. Jessie, who was kind and warm with many, but knew the depth, thoughtfulness and consistency of enduring friendship. I'm told Jess did a beautiful job. She texted to say, We missed you, beautiful. Eulogy was delivered in your spirit. There's a recording. I don't know if I'll ever be able to watch it. More so now. Last December, after months of chemotherapy, after months of friends caring and loving, visiting and helping after a bushfire rampaged through our property, my cancer marker suggested I was all clear. The oncologist added, for now. One week later, Jessie called from the hospital. She'd been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, the very worst of those hidden or silent killers. But it's you in the bed, not me, she said as Jen and I walked into her hospital room, down corridors glittering with Christmas decorations. We sat stunned, the four of us, two girls with cancer and their long-term girlfriends. Over these last six months of Jessie's illness, I've known what it is to be the friend on the other side, the friend who longs to help, who sends messages and poems and pictures to bring joy. Jessie and I exchanged texts about property. She loved real estate. I sent her my book launch videos from this COVID isolation. I sent her pictures of the mandarin and orange trees' new growth, trees she'd pruned of bushfire burn last October, on her last visit to the farm. By April, my cancer markers were up again, along with the uncertainty. This was outside the Brazilian wizard's expertise, too close to the pancreas and portal vein. Jessie texted, asking about the results. I ended my reply, I mean, really, girls? Shared experiences? And then I switched to Jessie's favoured topics, property and publication, my memoir and thoughts about her beautiful manuscript before she sent it to her agent. My book was on Jessie's hospital bedside table after the decision was made to discontinue her treatment. My book was what she wanted to talk about when she asked that I come and say goodbye. She told me how her psychologist friend, who didn't usually read memoir or fiction, had loved it. I updated her on the COVID-style promotion and read one chapter to her out loud. 
I told her all I'd loved about our friendship. Our beautiful, layered friendship. Her last words to me were, You are so precious to me, Haley." Jessie died a fortnight later. The same day my triple-phase CT scan showed a large cancerous lymph node in my abdominal cavity. A liver surgeon said he could remove it. Now, ten days since Jessie's death, here I am in hospital. Again. Lucky they were able to flay me open and get it out. Again. Bewildered by the fragility of life. Again. I close my eyes and see Jessie as I saw her last. Her beautiful blue eyes shining above her blue and white striped pyjamas. And I see my watery friend Madeline in her bright blue rashy at her favourite beach. Precious, precious friends. It's incredibly... Um generous and touching that Haley chose to share that story with queer stories and with us obviously something so deeply personal and heartbreaking um it was a beautiful piece of writing as well so thank you Haley. finally for today we've got a story from michael's son uh just last week we were able to gather in sydney in groups of 30 for a small queer stories event it was strange this sort of uh shift from the bigger events in sydney that normally have 300 people but it was really really lovely to be in a group of queers again and we did the show three times in one day by the last time we were quite delirious but this was so we could get a few more people through the door Michael Sun is a freelance writer with bylines in The Guardian, The Monthly, Vice, ABC Arts, Overland, Liminal Magazine and more. He's the Kill Your Darling's new critic this year where he writes regular columns blending memoir and criticism of queer work. And he's also the culture editor for Junkie, working with Netflix. In his spare time, along with all those things, he's a freelance graphic designer. He co-hosts the Saturday Lunch Show on FBI Radio and he's a board member of First Draft Gallery. This story was recorded at Giant Dwarf in Sydney, as I said, so you'll be able to hear a little bit of audience coming through in the audio. We can remember what it was like when we had audiences. Enjoy. Growing up, I went to a Catholic primary school, which means that I'm now agnostic and live with overwhelming guilt. It was a tiny school called St. Patrick's with about one class per grade and an outstanding number of students who later turned out to be gay. I don't think my parents would have sent me to St. Patrick's if they'd had access to a crystal ball whose only function was to determine the future likelihood of any given person's queerness. But then again, I don't quite know why my parents sent me there at all. Apparently they decided early on in my life that I was to go to a Catholic school even though they were not Catholic, had never been Catholic, and didn't know anyone else who was Catholic. They didn't go to church and didn't even want me to go to church. Once when I was desperate to fit in, I begged my parents to take me to mass just once after Sunday cartoons, which my dad reluctantly obliged. We went and we sat in the chairs and then we left. And my dad asked me if I wanted to come back to church again or whether I wanted to keep watching cartoons next time. And I said cartoons and that was the end of it. I think my parents sent me to Catholic school to get disciplined. And they eventually took me out because I was getting too disciplined in matters of faith and not enough in matters of academia as an 11 year old. What could I say? I love Jesus, or more accurately, Jesus' body, by which I mean the Eucharist, obviously, and not his actual body. Okay, maybe some depictions of his actual body, but definitely not the one hanging above the altar of St. Patrick's Catholic Primary School Church, where, granted, you can see his rippling abs, but they're also kind of obscured by red paint, aka blood, to the extent where the abs were no longer visible, except in the semi-hidden, teasingly coy way of someone who answers the door in a bathrobe. I was not attracted to Jesus, surprisingly. But one thing I was attracted to, or attracted to in the pre-puberty sense of wistfully staring at someone and willing them to spend all of their time with you, which I guess is exactly the same way I'm attracted to people, was M, a boy one year older than me, who had the same first initial as me, which I always wanted to point out and turn into an inside joke, but never could because someone sharing the same first initial as you is not that rare or romantic. 
I met Em at after school care, which took place in a large hall at a public school, about 10 minutes away by bus ride from St. Patrick's. Em actually went to St. Patrick's too, but we never saw each other during school hours, only afterwards in this very large and very fluorescently lit hall. Sometimes it felt like we were co-workers having a clandestine affair, except we were an 11 and 12 year old who were not having any sort of affair, let alone a clandestine one. Only if I was lucky, a shared bus seat on the 10 minute bus ride to after school care, during which we would not even talk to each other at all. I always associate different crushes of my life with the songs that came out while I was head over heels. And for M, it's Just Dance by Lady Gaga, a song about getting half psychotic, sip hypnotic, got my blueprint, it's symphonic. I can't imagine a single thing happening in 2008 without Just Dance also playing in the background like staring at the Jesus above the altar of St. Patrick's Catholic Primary School Church with Just Dance playing in the background, or being punched in the stomach by Cassandra Bonfa with Just Dance playing in the background, or being forced to join M's cult with Just Dance playing in the background. When I say forced, it was more like forced by my own prepubescent crush to join M's cult. So what I really mean is that I joined M's cult for love. When I say cult, though, what I really mean is cult. M had the kind of charismatic personality that only a queer person could have, as in he was loud and attention-seeking at a time when I was also loud and attention-seeking, but didn't know how to make people believe that being loud and attention-seeking could be charismatic instead of deeply annoying. Sometimes when I think about M, I think I might be getting the story wrong and that everyone maybe did think he was loud and attention-seeking and annoying, but then I remember that, no, he convinced 10 people to join a cult. I have no idea how the cult started, just that I was enticed into it as part of M's master plan to form critical mass. His logic was that once a certain number of people had joined the cult, there would be no choice but for every other student at after school care to also join the cult, unless they wanted to be part of a minority, which no one wanted. I mean, obviously I didn't need much convincing to join the cult. All it took was one tap on the shoulder from M and I was in, I was in deep. I would gladly have betrayed anyone I knew if it made M happy or even satisfied. M was my king and not even in the we stand a king kind of sense, but literally in the medieval sense where like I would have gladly been the court jester to his king, which makes sense because if there's one thing I was and still am, it's a clown. Sometimes when the conversation of cults has come up in the years since this, people always tell me that I'm like the first person they know who would join a cult. And I'm always like, that's so silly, like I would never join a cult. But they don't even know the half of it. Every afternoon and after school care, M would come around and check on us to make sure that we were not at all using any form of technology. That we were not playing Snake on our Nokia phones. That we were not so much as watching other people play Mario Kart on the Nintendo 64. And definitely not listening to Just Dance on our iPod Nanos. There were a lot of things we were not allowed to do but not much that we were actually supposed to. I guess that was the point of the whole shebang. Something about unplugging and digital detox and rest and relaxation. Although I doubt M, even the child prodigy that he was, would have framed it in such alluring buzzwords. We had weekly meetings where we didn't talk about much, or maybe I was just distracted because the entire duration of the meeting would be spent wistfully staring at M and willing him to spend all his time with me. On sunny days, M would gather us, or 10 of us, or maybe even more towards the end, up on the grassy knoll above the very big school hall, like children of the corn. I'm imagining him now in a white robe, but I'm certain what he was actually wearing was something more like a gray shirt with a blue and yellow striped tie and gray shorts and knee socks, which was also what I was wearing, it was also the school uniform of St. Patrick's. On the grassy knoll, we would hold hands, free from the shackles of technology, no Nokia phones, no Nintendo 64s, and definitely no iPod Nanos with Just Dance, that's their only song loaded on them, distracting us from what was in front of our very eyes, which at that moment was M, in the center of the circle. Sometimes he would deliver what I guess I would now call a sermon. There is one line I remember most clearly because he said it again and again on different days. He said, technology rots your brains, which was meant to strike fear into our hearts and make us never want to use tech ever again. But what he didn't know was that my brain was already rotten and the only thing left was the song Just Dance. Sunny days like these were the most cultish, but also the most blissful. And those days make me understand the addiction of religion in a way that no amount of Catholic schooling ever could.
M's charisma, or as loudness and attention-seeking disguised as charisma, was addictive in a way that being with him felt like permanently having ingested one quarter of a badly measured edible, galaxy-braining towards him, my king, at the centre of that circle and also every circle. He was addictive in a way that made me forget about Just Dance, even if just for a moment. I think that's why when I saw him a decade later, five Lady Gaga albums later, I didn't even recognise him. He had become a blur in my memory. In my mind, he was no longer real. Just a rush, a peak that I'd been coming down from my whole life. I didn't think I would ever see M again, even though deep down, I always hoped I would. Even after we had both left after school care, even after we had both moved schools and long stopped talking to each other. When I saw M again, I was at the university pub and he was in Young Labour, which <laughs> makes total sense for someone who was loud and attention-seeking and also started a cult. If early 2010s indie cinema has taught me one thing, it's that if you go searching for an old flame, all you will find is someone married with kids who has no intention of, re of rekindling their relationship with you, and you will end up sad and alone. That's for anyone who's watched the movie Young Adult 2011 with Charlie Theron. But what I found wasn't someone married with kids. It was someone who was 21 and queer, which was somehow worse. Plus, I was already sad and alone anyway. If M was married with kids, I would have known that my 11-year-old fantasy was just that, a fantasy. But what I imagined could have happened between M and I now felt like something more. As if the fact that he turned out to be queer meant that more could have happened, as if it validated all of my prepubescent crush thinking and hours of wistfully staring at him, willing him to spend all of his time with me, as if his wild cult suddenly seemed like the most reasonable and blissful thing in the world again. I thought all of these things, even though when I saw M again, I knew that I was no longer attracted to him. He told me he had no memory of the cult, but when we talked, I quietly hid my phone under my bag, just in case. Recently, one of my mothers was cleaning out her garage and she came across my diary from when I was 11 years old. And there's just these pages and pages of yearning for a best friend who'd moved to Tasmania. And gosh, I don't think I, even with lesbian mothers, I didn't quite understand what was going on yet. But it was beautiful listening to Michael's story and then reading that diary and realising this shared experience we all seem to have. Anyway, that's our stories for this little podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more stories like these, visit queerstories.com.au and subscribe to the podcast. Follow Queer Stories on Facebook for updates. Thank you so much to the Byron Writers Festival for allowing us to share these stories and to the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund for making all of this possible. Please consider purchasing one of the books written by these brilliant writers at festival bookseller thebookroomatbyron.com the cancellation of writers' festivals has had a real impact on authors promoting their books this year, so your support is really appreciated. Also, they're brilliant reads, so you should buy them. Look, for more wonderful content, Conversations from Byron podcasts are hosted at byronwritersfestival.com digital. I hope to see you all next year in person. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.